Well, as Daryl prayed for me, uh, or, you know, lifted me up in the prayer time, yes, spent three days this week in West Virginia, Elkins, West Virginia, uh, right in the Appalachian Mountain region. Cell service was terrible. Uh, it, was, it was pretty bad. Uh, unless you had Wi-Fi, it was, it was pretty uh, hit and miss whether or not you were going to be able to get a call out or, or receive a text. And I'd find out that I'd receive a text from some friends at conference that they sent earlier in the day. I wouldn't get it till later at night. I'm like, oh, that's, you know. <laughs> but uh, thank you for praying. Uh, for those who don't know what district conference is, uh, it's a mandatory conference for all licensed workers in the alliance in our district. It's a, it's a prayer conference. Uh, it's also a training. There's training and uh, business that gets done. It would be similar to what we do at our annual meeting where, you know, we do business items. Um, but it's not just about business. There's lots of prayer, and uh, there, we did communion together as, as licensed workers in, in the district. And uh, God really moved in, in a lot of different ways for a lot of different people, myself included, and just wanted to say thank you for uh, praying for that trip. Was able to get there and back safely, no issues, so thank you. This morning, we're going to do a little exercise together. Now, before you start freaking out and getting all anxious, I'm not talking about physical exercise. But you can just, whew. This kind of exercise is, is an interactive activity between you and me. Do you know what an antonym is? An antonym is like the opposite of something. So, for instance, uh, if I were to say good, the antonym would be bad or, or evil, right? So I've got a list of, of words that I'm going to give you, and then you're going to give the antonym. Young, difficult, happy, wise. <laughs> that one was a mixed bag. Foolish, yeah. Uh, fat, warm, fast, broad, narrow, yeah. Build, tear down, destroy, heaven, hell, blessing, curse, yeah. Yeah, good job. I knew you could handle that. That wasn't so bad, was it? A lot of you are still going, okay, okay, what's, he's going to say one that I don't know the opposite to. <laughs> you can wipe your sweat off your brow. We're good. That was it. Over the last five weeks, it's been five weeks we've been in Habakkuk together, we've been studying God's word. We've discovered that Habakkuk was a prophet that has a back and forth conversation with the Lord. It's, it's, a, it's a different type of prophetic book than others that we read, because it really is this conversation that Habakkuk and the Lord has. And again, if you've missed any of those messages, they are online. They're on, you can go to our website and click the link, and it'll take you to the Spotify page, and you can get caught up on those. Or you can go straight to Spotify, which is Coshocton Alliance Church, and you will find us there. Um, that resource is available to you. But in order to find out where we are today in, in the word, in the text, I just want to summarize what we've found out so far in the book of Habakkuk. So to, 
to quickly summarize the situation, Judah, which is the nation that Habakkuk is, is a part of, um, which is the uh, two of the 12 tribes, has fallen into wickedness. They, they, they found a, a time of revival in the Lord and have walked away from that. And now the nation of Judah is wicked. And Habakkuk brings these complaints to God about this wickedness not being judged, not being taken care of. And he basically brings these questions and complaints to God that God is being passive and, uh, and that, uh, God, why aren't you doing something about all of this? To which then God responds and reveals to Habakkuk that he's already got plans for judgment, and he wouldn't believe it if he told him. He said, I'm raising up a nation more evil and wicked than Judah, called the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, and they're already, it's already in motion. To which then Habakkuk then goes, wait, 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 wait. How, how can that be? And he complains and struggles with some doctrinal things that he believes about God. God, you're a good God. How could you use an evil nation to bring judgment? Right? To which God then responds a second time. In the last couple weeks, this is part three of that second response. We've kind of broken it down chunk by chunk in the beginning five verses. But that's where we find ourselves this morning, where God is in the middle of responding to Habakkuk's complaints and struggles about what he believes about God. So hopefully you've had time at this point to get your Bibles open to Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 6 to 20 this morning. And this section is called, Woe to the Chaldeans, or Woe to the Babylonians. And before we read, we should just note that woes are condemnations. So what would be the antonym of the condemnation. Praise. Praise. Okay, so these are condemnations, woes, or condemnations that the Lord is proclaiming on Babylon. So as we have the word open, let us seek the Lord in prayer, and then we'll read his word together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just come before you and The week has been a shortened week for time in your word, but your spirit gives wisdom and insight and and conviction, Lord. I I ask that, Lord, in my weakness and in my own weakness this morning, I, I admit that my preference would have been to have a lot more time. But, Lord, I'm trusting that you have this. You have all of this. And you always have. So, Lord, I I pray that you would speak this morning, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see you. Lord, that you would reveal exactly what each one here and each one who listens later, what they need from you. Because your word is living and active. So, Lord, would you speak this morning? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Starting in verse 6 of chapter 2. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges? 
Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be a spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to the cities, and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol? When, it is, when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes, it, makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is God's word. Remember, this is a conversation between the Lord and Habakkuk about a very specific event in history. All right, the context is, if you back up to chapter 2, verse 2, the Lord answered Habakkuk, and he told Habakkuk to write this vision and make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For the vision awaits its appointed time. If it seems slow, wait for it. So this is, this is the judgment that the Lord is proclaiming on Babylon that is written down for a specific time yet to come. And it's important in texts like this that, that we understand the context. Right? The context is that these are specific woes to a specific group of people in a specific time and place. But that doesn't mean there isn't application for God's people today. So I've kind of broken up um, these woes into three parts for each woe. What is the wrong being proclaimed? Or in other words, what is the condemnation that God is proclaiming against the people? Then what is the judgment he's proclaiming? And then what is the lesson for us to take away from God's word as we unpack each of these woes? But we started in verse 6, and it says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him and with scoffing and riddles for him? Who are the these? Well, we have to look at verse 5 for context. 
Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he, never, he has never enough. He, Babylon specifically, gathers for himself all nations and collects, all his own, uh, collects as his own all peoples. So these are the collected peoples. These are the ones that have been conquered that are going to take up their taunt against Babylon. That's who the these are. And then in verses, the rest of verse 6 through 20 make up these five woes, these five woe oracles. And they're, and they're broken up into two parts, a declaration of wrong and a pronouncement of judgment. Uh, and like I've already gotten ahead of my notes here, we're going to say, okay, well, this is judgment and wrong for this group of people, but what do we have? Knowing that 2 Timothy 3.16 is true, that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, what is the takeaway for us in today's day? So he's the first woe. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. We see that God is condemning Babylon for their greed in conquest. They were hungry. They, they heaped up what was not their own. Right? We, th this uh, is in contrast that God is sovereign over all, and God has raised up these Chaldeans, but God is also condemning them for taking what he has not given them. It's a greed in their conquest. So that's the wrong. And God's judgment on them says, Will not your debtors suddenly arise. The idea here is those who he has, uh, I guess I need to back up one step here to make this point, loads himself with pledges. That's the idea of taking loans or, or, or taking uh, pawned goods. Pledges were debts owed. I guess a, a Modern day would be like if I loaned somebody money, right? I'm the debtor to the debt. That's a pledge. And the judgment is, will not the debtors, the ones who loaned, will they not arise and make you tremble? In other words, God is revealing that there's going to be a day that even though Babylon is coming in and conquering Judah... And yes, God recognizes that they're going to take more than what God is willing to give them. He acknowledges that in the woe. He's saying, but woe to Babylon because they've gone too far and those who they've taken from will rise up one day against them. The debtors will arise. And then... He says, then you, speaking of Babylon, will be the spoil for them. Babylon will then be the spoil because of their greed in their plundering and taking what was not theirs. They themselves will be plundered by the very same people they plundered from. So what is the lesson for us? Because this is a very specific, very specific case of condemnation and judgment. Well, I think the lesson for us is that those who are greedy in taking out debts will one day face their debtors. We have a responsibility for those that we take debts from. 
right, that we take loans from, that, that whether it's financially or materially, we face our debtors. You know, and, and I just was listening to a podcast this morning on what is the morally right thing to do with student loan forgiveness right now, right? Like, our, our president has created this huge student for loan forgiveness, what is the morally right thing to do? And I, I admit it's a difficult decision. It's a difficult discussion. Scripturally, I think it, you know, it's the, you owe what you've borrowed. Right? That's what this is talking about. It's like, we will face our debtors, those who have given to us. That's the lesson. Let's get to the second woe. Second woe in verse 9 says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high. Now, this one's a little bit tricky. And, and what I kind of notice is that each one of these woes kind of build on themselves. Okay? So they, they, they kinda, they're kind of stepping stones, if you will. He says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. And it's two-part. Evil gain for his house to be safe from the reach of harm. All right, the wrong here that is exposed, that God exposes, the condemnation is for relying on the evil gain to provide safety. The wrong is that as Babylon would conquer and take and take and take, they relied on their, their uh, ability to take and take and take as security from harm. And so God pronounces judgment on them. The, the evil gain here uh, for the wrong, evil gain literally means taking things that don't belong to you. That's evil gain. If it's not yours and it hasn't been given to you and taking it, what's not yours is evil gain. You've gained something that was not yours and was not given to you. We know uh, historically when it, when it talks about setting his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm, historic Historians have been able to find that Babylon had a reputation for building inaccessible cities in a way that, when, in order to be safe from conquer. You know, I, I read one article where it said that they have found a wall uh, for one of the walled cities of the Babylonian Empire that was wide enough for a four-horse chariot to run down. Right? They felt secure by this. The judgment that the Lord proclaims here is that you have devised shame for your house. The judgment is shame. By destroying or cutting off people, many people have forfeited their lives in this conquest. It says, by cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your own life. In other words, the judgment is, is that there's going to be shame upon the house of Babylon and that by destroying these nations beyond what the Lord had raised them up for, judgment is now being put back on him, on Babylon for that. And then it says here, in verse 11, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. This is talking about how the stones and the beams that were plundered from conquering would testify against Babylon. Right? And I, I kind of think of like, 
you know, Jesus' words to the Pharisees, like, if, if these people would not testify, the stones themselves would testify, right? It's that kind, of, that kind of language here. God is making it very clear to the Babylonians that judgment is coming, that, uh, that they will be judged for the, the evil that they have done. So what is the lesson for us? Again, this is written to a specific time and place. Well, I think what I get out of this is that those who trust in the things of this world for safety will not find security come judgment day. Those who find their security in this world versus Jesus himself will be disappointed come judgment day. And I'll admit, this is hard. This is a hard lesson because everything in our world says, have more. You know, leave a legacy. Leave beyond, you know, leave a financial legacy for those behind you. And, and that's not morally wrong. That's not a bad thing. But are we finding our security, our safety, our comfort in those things versus finding our security in the one who provides it himself, the Lord. We will not find our security come judgment day if we've put it in the things of this world. Next woe, verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. The wrong. Babylon is condemned for their violence and injustice. Iniquity means injustice, unrighteousness, or wickedness. And so we see that God is proclaiming condemnation for Babylon's violence and wickedness or their injustice. He says in verse 13, Behold... Is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Now, I'll admit, I wrestled with this verse for longer than I wished to this week. What does it mean to, that people labor merely for fire? I'm like, maybe, maybe that word that's being translated there for fire might have some other meaning to it. No, it literally means for fire. Literally flame. But I found in Jeremiah 51, verse 58, a similar language that helps kind of bring this into perspective. Remember, Habakkuk is thought to be a, a contemporary of Jeremiah, so speaking of the similar worldly events happening at the time, Babylon invading, in verse, uh, chapter 51, of, uh, verse 58 of Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The broad wall of Babylon shall be leveled to the ground, and her high gates shall be burned with fire. The peoples labor for nothing, and the nations weary themselves only for fire. I think the idea here is that, you know, fire was a needed, necessary component of crafting things. 
And so God's saying, like, all this work for fire to build this great city, all this work, all this thing is meaningless. They weary themselves night and day they to- in their toil for nothing. And so the judgment that the Lord pours out on Babylon for their violence and injustice is that it is not from the Lord, uh, excuse me, is it not from the Lord of hosts, which is Yahweh, the commander of heavenly armies, that people labor merely for fire? It's this idea that uh, God will let man weary himself to death if he so chooses. Right? It's, it's this idea that Yahweh, commander of the heavenly armies, will allow man to weary ourselves through our work. He will allow us to do that. But he also says that you do it for nothing. There's no gain. And so I think the lesson here for us is that if God is not in or through your work, it's meaningless work. If God isn't being glorified through what we do, it's, it's, in the end, it's a jar of peanut butter. I'll explain that. Kids were having a, a night uh, where one of the kids was, was making a snack with peanut butter. Went to put the peanut butter away. Went to put the peanut butter away. Another kid said, oh, don't put that away. I want some peanut butter, too, for my snack. I'll put it away. Second child didn't put the peanut butter away. Mom comes into the kitchen. Hey, first child, put the peanut butter away. I don't need to put the peanut butter away. So-and-so said they were going to put the peanut butter away. It's just a jar of peanut butter. Right? Like, what are we fighting about here? Just do what you're told. Like, in the grand scheme of things, it's a jar of peanut butter. If the Lord isn't in what we're doing, if the Lord isn't guiding our work and being glorified through our work, it's meaningless work. And we're toiling for nothing and wearing ourselves out. The same thing is true for ministry. There are a lot of so-called ministers in the world today where the glory goes to them, not to the Lord. Everything we do, all of our work, if God isn't the one directing it and leading us through it, it's just a jar of peanut butter at the end of the day. Next woe, verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. The wrong, the condemnation that the Lord proclaims on Babylon is that they're to be condemned for taking advantage of their neighbors. That's really what's going on here, is that Babylon was taking advantage of their neighbors by making them drink and getting drunk so that they could see their nakedness. That's a shame thing. So God calls them out and says, Woe to you, Babylon. 
gazing at nakedness is a shameful thing, right? All throughout scripture, we, we see where, you know, if you came upon someone's nakedness, you brought shame on that person. Think about Noah and his sons, right? Where he, after the flood, he finds himself drunk and naked on the ground. And one of the boys sees him and, you know, brings shame upon him for that. But something that came to my mind was that Jesus was naked on the cross. Now, often we use, like, we, we, we picture him with a loincloth. Historical evidence would show that, no, there was nothing on him but the, thorn of the, crown, the crown of thorns. To be gazed upon and be shamed on the cross. And he took that shame to the grave and three days later rose again victorious over it, along with sin and death. And if we don't connect shame on the cross with his death, when we start to experience shame, we feel like God can't take care of that. But Jesus himself took our shame upon himself on the cross, in his nakedness, through his death, was buried, three days later rose again victorious over that sin and shame. Now, it's just a connection that I made here. God pronounces judgment on Babylon for this condemnation of taking advantage of their neighbors. And he says, because you've done this, Babylon will have their fill of shame, not glory. It says, you will have, in verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. So drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. Right? God says, you know what? Go ahead. But at the end of the day, you're just bringing shame upon yourself instead of glory. So what's the lesson for us? Well, we know the great commandment is to love our Lord God with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. So we're called as God's people, to love our neighbors, not to take advantage of them or bring them shame. I wonder what our communities might look like if we live, truly lived this out, if we truly loved our neighbors instead of quarreling over little quips We're called to love our neighbors, not take advantage of them, not, not to, to gaze at their nakedness and their shame and, and, and point it out. The reality is you probably live with people on your street that don't know Jesus, and their lifestyle would be shameful for us as believers. But we're told not to, as the body of Christ, cast judgment on the world. That's for God. We're not to expect them to live a Christian life if they're not transformed by Christ. So don't bring shame upon their lifestyle. Love them. Because that's the doorway to the gospel so that they can be transformed. I think sometimes, I, 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 this might be preachy, 
but I, I guess that's part of my job. <laughs> I think sometimes we get this idea in our head that non-believers in our neighborhood need to behave like us before we can have conversations with them, before we can invite them over, before we can have them for a backyard barbecue. And I think, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, it's because it makes us, un- us uncomfortable to have them over because they're not like us. It's a preference issue. I don't, they're going to swear around my kids. You're the spiritual leader of your household. Prepare your kids. It's going to happen. They hear it all anyway. But love your neighbor. We're all called to that. Not just those in vocational ministry. We're all called as Christians, as those who find their new identity in Christ, to love our neighbors. And until we all take up that call together, we're, we're going to keep stumbling and tripping. And we're going we're gonna to have this like, man, I don't understand. Why isn't, why isn't my community, like, why am I not seeing revival? Like, all of us have to take this mantle up. Because it's all of our calling, not just some of us. I'll get off the soapbox. Next woe, verse 19. This one, the woe comes after a a proclamation. Don't worry, we'll back up to verse 18 to get there. Verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Babylon is being condemned for making idols and trusting their idols and worshiping their idols. If you back up to 18, God says, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. So woe to him who says to this wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Obviously the answer is no. And this is very specific of a metal image and, and, and wooden image and rocks. But the reality is we make idols out of everything. We make idols out of a lifestyle. We make idols out of comfort. We make idols out of money. We make idols out of everything. Idols take many forms. Some that are more easily recognizable than others. And so God casts judgment on Babylon for their idol worship and their making of idols and, and trusting in their idols. He says, idols have no value or profit and instead lead to deception. The idol has no breath at all in it. This word breath. Hmm. Speechless, idol, speechless idols would be another translation. This word speechless uh, um, no, 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 sorry. Verse 19. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. This same word for breath 
is the Hebrew word ruach, which is for the spirit, breath, wind. In Genesis 1, when it says that the, the spirit of the Lord was over the waters, ruach. It refers to a life force. The Greek equivalent for this word breath is pneuma, which we translate as wind, breath, or spirit. And I think what God is saying here, he's like, they've, they've overlaid these idols with gold and silver. They've made, they've made these, these idols, and yet there's no life in them. There's no breath. There's no spirit in them. And yet they worship it. They trust it. And I think the lesson for us is that we're to trust God for all things. Anything else leads us to deception. Anything else leads us down a path of looking to idols and ultimately has no power, no life in them. Only God has rock, the spirit. Because he is spirit. So here we have these five woes, these five condemnations to Babylon and judgments that come along with it. And, and Habakkuk is hearing these woes to Babylon and understanding not only is there judgment coming for Babylon, but just how, thing, how bad things are going to be for Judah. I mean, it's a two-edged sword here, if we're being honest, because each one of these woes brings a reality with them for Judah. And at the very end here, verse 20, God wraps this all up by saying, But the Lord, Yahweh, is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Yahweh is the Lord of our creation, his creation, excuse me. Everything we see, Yahweh has made. All of it. There is not one thing we have that he did not make. And this language of all the earth keeps silence before him, all the earth specifically is speaking to the earth, the ground, the trees, the air. It's not a reference to mankind. That's a different word. And so when, he, when uh, God says, but Yahweh is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him, He's specifically talking to the earth, the elements of the earth, the ground, the trees, the rocks, that if God allowed them to, would testify of his goodness. He commands them to keep silent. This is a show of God's command over, think about what was just talked about, idols made of metal wood, right? Things of the earth. So God is literally showing that even though people will make these idols out of the earth, God still commands 
whether they speak or not. Because he's in control of all the earth. Which brings us back to this recurring theme in Habakkuk that God is in control. Even when we don't see it. Even when we don't feel him. Even when we... It doesn't feel like he's in control. When the, when the things of our world feel out of control and chaotic, God, Yahweh, is in his temple and he's still in control. It may not look the way we want it to look, but he's in control. And he always has been. And I think that in this day that we find ourselves in, the Lord is saying, church, wake up. I'm doing a new thing. I've been doing a new thing. Would would we have eyes and, and a posture to say, okay, Lord, it may not be what I want to see happen, but help me catch your vision. Help me see what you see. Because ultimately, that's all that matters. Would you pray with me as we close and go to a closing song? Heavenly Father, Lord, we just uh, admit that passages like this can be difficult. We know that these specific woes were written to a specific group of people at a specific time and place. But Lord, we also know that your word is written and preserved throughout time with purpose, with intention for our good, for our training. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move among us and convict us of things that maybe we're placing our trust in. Maybe we're not even aware we're doing so. Lord, I pray that you would move in a way that uh, those who are frustrated with the events of this world, Lord, would be able to lay those down and trust you deeper. Lord, I pray that whatever, whatever of these judgments, of these woes, resonated with anyone who heard this morning, they would see you in the midst of all of it. And instead of being frustrated or feeling condemned, that they would find freedom in you. There is no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we're, we're going to sing a song that, that proclaims that you are the way maker. You are the promise keeper. Lord, in the, in the final, the bridge talks about that even when I don't see it, you're working. When I don't feel it, you're working. Because, God, you're, you never stop working. You're a God who is in control of his own creation. Because you love us that much. So Lord, I pray that as we sing this song together in closing, Lord, that uh, you, you by your spirit would move among us. That you would convict. That you would lead us. That you would do what only you can do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to lead you through this song. And we encourage you to sing along. But we ultimately encourage you to listen to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit saying, hey, there's some stuff I'm holding on to.